Well, let me invite you now, if you have a Bible, to open it to the book of Romans. Last week we took a week off from Romans for the purpose of focusing upon um, Christmas and the coming of our Lord. But this week we're back in Romans and we'll probably need to reorient ourselves to the context of what's going on here in this powerful book. Uh, today our scripture reading is Romans chapter 6 verses 15 to 23. And that is what we will do today to cover uh, this particular text. With that said, <clears throat> hear now the word of the living God. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace by no means? Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that the one who inspired and breathed out this word will now empower both the one who speaks and the one who listens. For the one who speaks, we just pray for wisdom and spiritual discernment and understanding uh, deeply the gospel. And for those who hear, remove all barriers and deadness and dullness and receive the engrafted word of truth which is able to save our souls. And this we pray to your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Now, there are two fundamental truths to the reality and truth of the gospel that you need to keep in your heart and in your mind constantly. Truth number one, though we are more wicked and sinful and twisted and uh, rebellious and self-centered than we could ever imagine or believe 
at the same time we are more loved, we are more rejoiced over, we are more delighted in, we are more accepted than we could ever possibly hope. Both of those things have to be at work in your heart at the same time or you will lose your way. If you focus on your sinfulness and you become a devotee of what I call worm theology, that you're always rolling in your brokenness and in your wickedness and in your sinfulness, and that's all you can think about. It's all you can talk about. And you're like Linus. Is he the one with the, the blanket that's dirty and there's dust coming off it all the time? That, that's who you are. And if you're that way, I guarantee you this is what will happen to you because it happened to me. You become a legalist. You'll try to fix yourself. You'll try to find ways in which you can figure out ways in which you can overcome this and you, you re begin to rely upon yourself more and more and you, you try harder and, and you do more and you, you have a theology, a Nike theology that just says, just do it. Don't think about it. Stop this sinning. Stop the insanity. Just do it. On the other hand, if you focus on the other half of the gospel, which is we're so dearly loved, so dearly treasured, that God is our Father, that he delights in us, he rejoices over us with singing, and that's all you think about, you'll become an antinomian. Paul deals with both of those tendencies in this passage, this chapter, chapter 6. And those are aberrations. Both of those are a misuse of the law of God. Whether you're a legalist, you're trying to use the law of God to sanctify yourselves, or whether you're an antinomian and you think the law has nothing to do with anymore, thank God I am free, freed from the law. Oh, blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. Romans 6 was written to counter both of those tendencies. And so Paul, who is brilliant, and of course inspired by the Holy Spirit, which makes him even more brilliant, Paul is dealing with those tendencies. He's anticipating that the gospel he had just preached to us in Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5, which is so clear and powerful, he's beginning to think about who's listening to the reading of this epistle in uh, the audience. He starts thinking about the audience. He not only exegetes God's word for us, but he exegetes the audience before him, and he anticipates objections that are going to come as people hear the liberating power of the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. And so that's what Paul does in this particular chapter. And one of the uh, people who've gotten this as clearly as I believe anyone can is John Stott. And he says this, the following. Verse 15, shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace, is clearly parallel to verse number 1. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? True, there are differences between sinning and persisting in sin and between sinning so that grace may increase um, and sinning because we are under grace. But they're minor. Substantially, the same question is being asked in both verses, namely whether grace sanctions sin or even encourages it. 
And in both cases, calls forth from the apostle the same vehement protest by no means. In the Greek, me gonoito, which means what? Not just no, <laughs> but absolutely not. You are totally misunderstanding the gospel if you think grace means you have a license to sin. Because grace not only is a disposition that God has toward us in his heart of receiving us when we come to Christ with no works in our hands, empty hands, totally looking outside of ourselves and relying totally upon Christ. We are saved amazingly by grace, but that same grace that is God's heart to us is also his power which changes us. Changes us inside out you can never claim with any confidence or assurance that you are justified before the face of God unless at the same time you are being sanctified by the spirit of God in your heart you're a new creature you have new attitudes you have new appetites you have new assurances you have new abilities because now you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and so Scott makes the point for us, I think quite well. He says we might say that Paul has rewound the tape and will now replay it, although with two significant shifts of emphasis. First, although he develops the same argument that freedom to sin is fundamentally incompatible with our Christian reality, he describes this in terms of our being united to Christ in verses 3 through 14 and our being enslaved to God in verses 16 to 23. It's not only the figure of speech which is different, however, namely dead to sin but alive to God and free from sin and slaves to God. It is also, secondly, how these radical changes come about. The emphasis of the former is on what was done to us, we were united to Christ, while the emphasis of the latter is on what we did, we offered ourselves to God as slaves to obey him. The passive statement alludes to our, what our baptism represents, our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Whereas the active is properly called conversion, we have turned from sin to God, although, of course, only grace enabled us to do this. What Paul does in the second half of Romans chapter 6 is to draw out the logic of our conversion, and he does so quite compellingly. As in the first half, he has drawn out the logic of our union with Christ. In both cases, his argument begins with the same astonished question. Do you not know? And then continues by probing our understanding of our Christian beginnings. Since through baptism we were united to Christ and in consequence are dead to sin and alive to God, how can we continue to possibly live in sin? Since through conversion we offered ourselves to God to be his slaves and the consequences are committed to obedience, how can we possibly claim freedom to sin? And so Stott is helpful in our understanding of Paul's thought here, what he's doing in each part of these uh, verses in chapter 6. And so this is the substance of Paul's question in verse 15. 
Although the question of verses 1 and 15 are very similar, they are not identical. Paul is asking very generally, if we're saved by grace alone, shall we go on sinning? And in verses 1 through 14, he explains, I'm repeating again to get the emphasis home, he explains that the gospel gives us new and different incentives for godly living than we had when we were under the law as a system for salvation. When we realize the purpose of the death of Christ as we think of it in gratitude, we find a new incentive to be holy. It is not fear nor self-confidence, but rather it is gratitude and love. And as we have seen, Paul ends this section by saying, you are not under the law, but under grace. But then verse 15, which is where we start today, if we are no longer under the law as a system of salvation, do this and live. That's being under the law as a system of salvation. I try to be obedient. Through my obedience, I try to put God in debt to me. And if God's in debt to me, then he owes me and he will bless me because I have tried the best I could and he'll make up the difference to be a good person. And that is using the law as a system of salvation. Paul is totally opposed to any kind of thinking like that. Are we under any other obligation to it at all? Does the law have anything to do with me as a believer? And he answers that by getting us to think. Can we do whatever we want, whatever we choose now that we're believers? Do we have to obey the Ten Commandments anymore, which Christian read for us today? Paul is beginning to address an extremely practical question what now is a Christian's motivation and understanding of obligation in daily living? For example, are Christians obligated to have a daily quiet time? Are Christians obligated to spend time in prayer? What is the proper role and understanding of what it means to be in Christ and to be living for him? What is our inner motivation that is leads us to self-control now that we all are not under the law? And we're not afraid that God will cast us off because of moral failure. It's a question with great practical implications. And so let's look at our outline. That's all by way of introduction, which should signal to you that this is going to be a really long sermon. <laughs> not really. It has five points. I usually have three. I had some guy ask me one time, he says, three is enough. Why are you doing five? And I said, because that's what the text has in it. The text governs what I try to preach to you. And that's because one of the great preachers that I had teaching me preaching in seminary was a man by the name of Doug Kelly, Dr. Douglas Kelly. And he taught me soteriology and some other systematic theology. And he was the kind of professor that he'd be teaching something, and all of a sudden a sermon would break out. And the man would just preach to us for a good hour. But when I had him as a, a professor of homiletics, that's somebody who's trying to help you learn how to preach, he would always say after every sermon to every classmate of mine, me included, I understand that you put a lot of effort into that, and I understand the passion with which you preached it, but stick to the text. 
preach the text because that's where the power is. That's where the truth is. It's not in your gifts. It's not in your style of delivery. The power's in the text. The power's understanding the argument, the implications, the text itself. And so that's what we're here to do, and we're going to do it, if you can follow, pretty quickly. First thing I want to say is everyone is a slave to something. Every human being that draws breath, that has a pulse, that you can get a blood pressure reading off of, is a slave to something. As in verse 1, Paul gives a very simple answer to the question, by no means. Why? Because being saved doesn't mean you are free from having a master. You can either be a slave to sin or a servant of God, but you cannot be neither and you cannot be both. Let me repeat that. You can either be a slave to sin or a servant of God, but you cannot be neither and you cannot be both. So every one of us sitting in a seat here in this building are either a slave to the power of sin within us or we're slaves to Christ, slaves to our Lord. And we're, we're serving as slaves one or the other. And it can't be both. No man can serve two masters, Jesus tells us, for he will either love one and hate the other. So you cannot have dual slaveries. You've either been liberated from one and are serving the other, or you're still living under the power of sin. And that's what he tells us very clearly. And to sort of catch the drift of this in the passage, he, he goes further and says, you... Uh, uh, you, you, this is the essential element of Paul's teaching in verses 16 through 22. There are only two masters, one or other, of which all humanity serves. In verse 16, he says we're slaves to sin or slaves of obedience. In verses 17 through 18, he says we're slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. And in verses 20 to 22, we're slaves to sin or slaves to God. So clearly, this is what Paul is saying this morning to us. And which one are you? Paul says first that no one is free. No one. No one is free. Everyone is a slave to something or someone. Everyone is offering themselves to someone. Everyone lives for something. We offer ourselves as sacrifices on some altar. We are all serving some cause, some bottom line, some ultimate concern, some ultimate commitment because we're worshiping creatures. We're made in the image of God, and we cannot stop it. We must worship, and whatever we worship, we serve. Everybody here is a worshiper, even the people who never darken the door of a church, even people who are the most wicked people you could ever imagine in your mind who are, are depraved beyond uh, any possible hope of redemption, it seems to us, though no one is. But... but Everybody serves something or someone. 
That's just how we're hardwired. That's how we're made. That's what it means to be a creature in the image of God. You cannot escape this. You can call it by another name, but you cannot escape this. Something has title deed to your heart. There are ruling desires in our being. And either it is to be a slave to God or a slave to sin. And Paul is going to talk about in this passage lots of contrast, lots of development on how this works its way out in our experience. But everybody, as Bob Dylan sang on his only Christian album, I don't know if Bob Dylan's still a Christian or not. It's kind of hard to tell with him. I don't know I should say this. He's the only concert I ever went to that I walked out of because the whole concert he stood with his back to the audience. And I thought, am I going to pay money when a guy won't even look at me when I'm singing? My wife was pulling on my jacket long before that. Let's go, let's go. But he did do a good song. And that one good album, his, quote, Christian phase, where he says everybody has got to serve somebody. And you do. You must. It's inescapable. And I'm going to try to help you understand (laughs) what your ultimate concern is, what your heart is committed to today, what you're willing to sacrifice for, what you're willing to give title deed of your heart to this morning. Rebecca Manley Pippard, who wrote a book called Out of the Salt Shaker, a, a very good book on evangelism, says the following. Whatever controls us is our Lord. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. The person who seeks comfort is controlled by comfort. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by whatever is the Lord of our lives. Paraphrasing the quote in terms of our text, we can say, we offer ourselves to whatever we seek as our highest good in life, whether it's comfort, control, power, acceptance, or some cause we believe in. Then we become slaves of whatever that may be. Thus, no one is in control of his or her own life. We are controlled by that to which we have offered ourselves. Whether we call ourselves religious or not, we have a God and we are all worshipers. Whatever you spend your spare time on, whatever you spend your treasure for, whatever you go to to receive comfort, whatever fosters hope in your life is your real God. I was talking to someone in the office this week and they presented me with a situation in which they were struggling with something and every time I would talk about it in this regard your functional God in your life is that thing that's standing between you and giving up your sin and if you love your sin more than you love God you're never going to turn and repent You're never going to come to yourself like the prodigal and go back home, even with the shaky motives the prodigal had. The prodigal probably had the worst motives of any sinner returning home, and the prodigal's speech to his father was nothing more than a negotiated attempt at a relationship. And the good thing was the father ignored all of it, covered him with kisses. Why? Because he came back. 
but we got to serve somebody. That's how we're made. It's getting awfully quiet in here. Think about it. It's, get, it's, it's getting awfully quiet. Uh, Lloyd-Jones, who I can't seem to say anything in Romans without having to say something he said, but he said this, but you say I'm not religious, but everybody is religious. What is your religion? Well, your religion is what you rely upon. Your religion is what you live for. It's what you hope for. Your God is that to which you give yourself. You give your time. You give your attention. Your greatest thought. Your money. You live for it. It is the thing that keeps you going. It's why you get up in the morning. It's why you take, put one foot in front of the other every day. You're living for something. And that's the drive. That's the engine. Those are the ruling desires of our hearts. It is what you turn to when life gets hard. Everybody has a religion, but the question is, what's the name of yours? Everybody has one. And that's what Paul's driving at in this passage. In fact, Paul goes on to say that there are fundamentally only two kinds of masters or categories of slavery. You can be slaves to sin or to obedience, verse 17. To be a slave of sin is truly slavery indeed, for it leads to death, and to be a slave to God leads to righteousness, love, joy, peace, self-control, goodness, kindness, temperance. So that's how we can tell who our God is, is by what that God produces in our lives. There's fruit from the root of who you worship. You become like who or what you worship. And if you worship Jesus, you're going to become more and more and more like Jesus. And that may not be what you think it's like. Jesus wasn't just a nice guy. You know, Jesus wasn't Casper Milk Toast. Jesus is hard to deal with. Why? Because he's into reality. He's into truth. But the more and more we become conformed to the image of Christ, growing from one degree of glory to the next because of the work of the Spirit in us, has to do with who you worship. And I mean, when you get honest and you get to the bottom line, that's where we are. All of us. Every single one of us. So Paul's main argument in this, anyone who wonders if a Christian can sin is ignorant about sin's enslaving nature. Put another way, a Christian does not have to obey the Ten Commandments in order to be saved, but a Christian does have to obey the Ten Commandments in order to be free. That's freedom. We have a wrong concept of freedom. I remember when I left home to go to college, and I didn't go to the college I really wanted to go to, but I was blackmailed in going to the college I went to because that's the only one my parents would pay for. I didn't have any money. And, you know, I'd done some manual labor, and that wasn't for me. I said, I got a brain. I need to exercise it. And by the way, the college that they paid for was a place that I ultimately was converted to Christianity, was saved. So how about that, parents? <laughs> Sometimes it works. 
Not always, but sometimes it does. What was I getting to? What was I talking about? Uh, huh? Help me. Any of you listening closely? Freedom. Oh, yeah. You know, I was, I was ready to let my freak flag fly. I had hair down to my shoulders. I was wearing stack shoes three and a half inches up. I was a cool breeze. And I went to school. And my motto for life was, I'm free, baby. I can do whatever I want to, whenever I want to, as long as I want to, and nobody can tell me no. That is the Magna Carta of misery. That is ultimately the way to self-destruction. But in my mind, I thought, that's freedom. No, that's bondage. That's bondage to sin and self and the world and the devil. That's what that is. You see, we're so affected by the fall that we don't see clearly. You remember when the devil came to Eve to tempt her in the garden, he suggested that God is keeping you in your place. That if you would simply take the fruit, the reason he didn't want you to eat that fruit is you can take it for yourself and then you can determine what is good for you and you can determine what is evil for you. And he lied and she took it. And she lost her freedom. I don't know what Adam was thinking. Some, some, some people say he was contemplating his navel. I don't think he had one. Think about that. But... <laughs> but they both were plunged. All of a sudden, they became intimidated and terrorized by the presence of God. And they ran and they hid from him. And their life became one big fat body. The biggest lie of the devil is just chunk away all that Christianity. That's what's holding you back. That's what's limiting you. That's what is keeping you from being who you really want to be. Get rid of all that morality. Get rid of all those restraints, and then you'll be free. No, you won't. No, you won't. You'll just be in a destructive bondage. And so that's what Paul is saying here. And so he tells us that the greatest freedom you have, if I could be, if I could obey the law of God perfectly in my life right now, I'd be the freest person ever. I don't because I can't, because I'm still a sinner. And there are desires in me that resist obeying the law of God. But I see it as beautiful. I see it as glorious. I see it as true. Now, as we continue on in the sermon, conversion brings about an exchange of slaveries. When you turn and return to God, when you repent of your sins and you exercise faith in Jesus Christ and you begin to walk in discipleship with him, there is an exchange of slaveries. Those slaveries are either to sin, which is destruction, I don't think we have any idea how much sin destroys us. A phrase that I've often used that comes out of my meditation from Numbers 
3322 or 2233. I think it's 2233. Some of you will look it up and say, no, it wasn't. But I, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Uh, can't remember that. I should have looked it up before I did it. But it says this, be sure your sin will find you out. It will find you out. You don't think it will, but it will. And as I often say to people, we don't do sin. Sin does us. We think we're practicing it as a freedom and a liberty, but it ultimately destroys us. It's helpful to see how Paul compares and contrasts these two slaveries in terms of their origin in verses 17 through 18 and in their development in verse 19. First, their origins are a contrast. The tense of the verb translated used to be in verse 17 is imperfect, which shows us that slaves to sin is what we are by nature. The slavery begins automatically. We are born into it. On the other hand, slavery to God begins when we are converted. When thanks be to God, we wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching in which we were entrusted. Notice four elements that come together to bring about this new condition of our souls. The form of teaching means conversion begins with a body of truth. It's not just a religious experience. It's not some transcendental moment but rather it has content and the content is a body of truth a specific message with a specific content that must be received and this always in every case in Paul's writings means the gospel the good news wholeheartedly means that the truth convicts and affects the heart before the gospel hits the heart it's possibly to have merely an intellectual grasp of Christianity or behavioral Christianity you try to live well in which Christian ethical principles are followed superficially but grasping the gospel changes one's bottom line what you serve what you worship and what you live for and the only thing that can change your bottom line is the power of the gospel. And that is what we need. It changes our body. It shows us that we are offering ourselves to power or acceptance or approval or sin, even if you're a morally acceptable person externally. We obey it means once the gospel penetrates the heart, it shows itself in real life change. There is an obedience that comes from faith. Paul argues this in Galatians 5, 6. But in Romans, he tells us in chapter 1, verse 5, that the gospel is responded to by the obedience of faith. Faith is obedience in that faith is turning and relying upon the power of Christ and the truth of the gospel. But that reliance upon it produces change. Real change. New creaturehood in Christ. So that's what he's talking about here uh, when he talks about these dynamics. And finally, thanks be to God means the whole process is always due to God's grace. So in summary, slavery to sin begins at our birth. Slavery to God begins at our new birth. 
When God's grace enables us to embrace the gospel in a heart-changing way, our motives, our bottom lines are changed, resulting in a total life change. See, some of you still at the bottom line, it, it's not Jesus. It's not living for him, not loving him, not obeying him, not delighting in him, not desiring him. You want to use Jesus to get what you really want. Jonathan Edwards slays me when he talks about this. He says, you don't want God for God. You want God so that he can help you fulfill your original goals. I remember when I came out here in 1988 to plant this church. And man, I had a schematic set up. It was, oh, it was the best vision a church planner could ever have. I was so excited about it because I spent a long time praying over it. And what I really did was I said, God, this is what I'm going to go do. Now bless it. Well, he didn't. What did he do? He tore it up and threw it in the ground. So now we're going to do it my way. If we're going to do it all, <laughs> we're going to do it my way. And that was not the road I was prepared to take. But I learned something very important. We don't get to dictate to God our terms. He's sovereign, we're not. He's God, we're not. We're slaves or servants to him. And there's no middle ground on that. There's no crawfishing on that. I lived in Louisiana. I can't, couldn't wait to use that term. You know what crawfishing is, don't you? Crawfishing is... Uh, being torn between two options and you can't go one way or the other. You're constantly oscillating like a, a fan in my grandmother's house that used to do this. Finally, I learned there's a button on it that you can push on the top that'll make it just blow on you. So in the night, I'd get up and stop it where it's blowing on me and my little brother was getting no fan. We'd wake up in the morning and his hair was just soaking wet. He looked like cats had been sucking on his hair. He looked awful. But that, <laughs> that's what happened. So, in summary, slavery to sin begins at our birth. Slavery to God begins at our new birth when God's grace enables us to embrace the gospel in the heart, changing our motives and our bottom lines, resulting in a total change of life. We don't use God. We worship God. We worship Him. Worship means to see what He's worth. That comes from Revelation. As the Bible tells us who God is and what he's worth. And then giving him back what he's worth. That's us recognizing we belong to him. We are slaves to him. And so, Paul goes on with his argument and says, there's a development to the slavery of sin and there's a development to the slavery to God. And in 619, we see each kind of slavery proceeds and advances. Neither one stands still. That is, they're not static, but they're dynamic. So you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, debauchery. Slavery to sin results in deterioration, ever-increasing. The deterioration comes because of the imperatives of the Lord 
lords of our lives, the things we serve, the things we worship, the seeing things we're seeking to work out their will in the world through our bodies. As we set a particular purpose, that action shapes our character and we and will so that it becomes easier to act in that way again and again and again. When you start sinning, when you become a slave to sin, you become enthralled by your bottom line, your ultimate value, your ultimate concern. Once that becomes true of you, your life begins to be degraded. At first it just starts out, it's like boiling a frog in a kettle. <laughs> Just by degree, by degree, the frog won't hop out because he's cold-blooded and he'll just adjust, adjust, adjust. That's what happens to us. Sin at first, it's just little things. It's a little look here or a little text here or a little conversation here or a little there and sin gradually establishes a beachhead in our hearts and before we know it what used to embarrass us and make us terribly ashamed is gone we've hardened our hearts it's not so bad everybody does it it's not so bad I'm still able to work I'm still able to live a decent life what I do is not so bad you're deceived you're believing your own lie wake up Sin deadens. It deadens us. And so Paul talks about that in that way, and he tells us uh, about the cycle, ever-increasing cycle of wickedness in our sin. Slavery to God works in the same way. Offering ourselves to righteousness leads to holiness. As we act according to the truth, our character and will are shaped into habits of holiness and righteousness. You know, uh, I think I've told you before. But the word holiness, when you read it in the Bible, what do you think? When I was a kid, I used to go to my grandmother's house, and she had a bro brother who I guess was my great uncle, and he was Pentecostal. And this is like backwoods. You can't find them. FBI can hardly find them. Pentecostal church. And I remember that he looked pretty much like every other man I'd ever seen, but his wife did not. She had really long hair. She never cut it. It was always in a bun on top of her head. But as a little boy, what caught my attention more than anything else was she had hairy legs. That was confusing to a boy like me. Of course, I noticed it, and I could not wait to get in the car and asked my daddy why she had hairy legs and hair under her arms. Sometimes I saw that too. See the pedigree I came from? <laughs> Some of the rest of you got it too. Don't laugh at me. <laughs> so I got in the car and I asked my dad, I said, why does my aunt so-and-so look like she looks? And he looks like he looks. He looks like us. She looks like that. He said, because she goes to the holiness church. And I thought, well, the last thing in the world I want to be is holiness. <laughs> you know what holiness really deep down is? It's beauty. It's beautiful. It's breathtaking. It's gorgeous. It's astounding, amazing. It's beautiful. 
And so the beatific vision is seeing Christ and becoming like him. When we shall see him and know him as he is, we shall become like him. We will be beautified. We will be glorified. Angels will want to worship us. And that is what slavery to God brings to our lives. Checking the clock. Okay. Living our reality. We're about to get to the finish line. These verses teach us how we can live it out and maintain our freedom from sin. In verse 13, parts of the body, verse 19 translates its members, does not strictly refer to our arms and legs, but rather to our components that carry out design and purpose. Paul says that impurity is a motive or a purpose to offer the parts of our body, all of it, to it is simply to act out. Thus we see that slavery to God is the result of an active effort on our part to act out what we know to be true of who we are in Jesus. So we must remember that verse 19 comes after verse 18 where Paul tells us you have been set free from sin. As we saw in the last two chapters, conversion brings us into a new realm, puts a new power into us. Sin can no longer force us to do anything. When verse 19 says, now offer them in slavery to righteousness, Paul is saying, be what you really are. Become what you are. And sin is not who you are. It's amazingly powerful and deceptive, but it's not who we are. How does this actually work itself out? It means coming to daily situations and recognizing the possibility of treating God as my highest good and thus my master, my ultimate concern, my treasure of treating something else as my highest good and thus my master. That would be sin. If it's not God, it's sin. For example, if someone says something that makes me look bad, I will offer myself as a slave of God or sin at that moment. I could let my desire to always look good and in control be my master. I could let my heart say, this is a disaster. I look like a fool. I have to discredit this person quickly. You know, you have to control the fallout. Or I figure out a way I can pay them back that will make them hurt. At that point, if I act out of that kind of thinking, offering myself to it, I will respond with bitterness, harsh language, and so on. Or I could remember that pleasing Christ is my ruling desire and motivation. I could have my heart say, well, this poor person has pointed out, albeit with a hateful motive, a flaw that I really should deal with. But fortunately, God is my judge, and he has accepted me in Jesus Christ. And if I act out of this kind of thinking, I will repent before God in my heart for what I'm truly guilty of and respond with a soft answer as in Proverbs 15, which I learned in the fourth grade, which is this. A soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stirs up anger. That's the war that goes on as to who is your master. Got anybody like that in your life? 
a boss, a coworker, a family member. Tough, isn't it? But that's how you live out, that's how you become and be who you really are. There is so much more to say, and I'm going to stop here. Hopefully you'll be interested enough to come back next week. But what we've heard today is enough. And Jesus is enough for us. So who is your functional, real God? Is it you? Or is it Jesus? Can anyone look at your life and see who you're a slave to? Does the way you order your time, the way you spend your money, the way you use your gifts and talents preach the gospel to other people? Or is it just like everybody else? Because that's what everybody else is doing. Which one are you? I hope you have a come to Jesus moment as we bow and pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Romans and it's truth and truth cuts it cuts both ways we thank you though that the truth shows us how we can have life and life abundantly how we can live out of the resources of who we are in Jesus Christ how the slavery that Jesus gives us is said this way he said Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon you and follow me, and I, will, I am a gentle master because he bears our yoke with us, and he will give us even more rest. Help us to recognize we are yoked to our master. We are slaves to him. But in reality, that is as free as we could possibly be. Thank you, Lord. Now we pray as we continue to worship, we would give. Our treasure would be an expression in proportion to the way we love you. We would give back to you doing so with joy because you have been so generous to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.